This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to South China Sea Currents, our weekly podcast on what's happening in the South China Sea. I'm joined by our South China Sea reporter, Drake Long, to discuss what he's been focusing on this week for Radio Free Asia and Banana News. How are you doing, Drake? Oh, I am doing pretty well. Another beautiful week. It is wonderful weather. I'm looking forward to that weekend that is coming up. So this week, we are going to look at US-Philippine relations. This has long been a central facet, not just of America's involvement in Southeast Asia and the West Pacific, but also toward US policy in the South China Sea. Manila and Washington are bound by a mutual defense treaty signed in 1951, as I expect most of our listeners are aware. So later in this podcast, we have a very interesting interview with a U.S. diplomatic veteran, Ambassador Tom Hubbard, for his insights both on the treaty and the alliance, because he was ambassador in in Manila in the 1990s. But first, Drake, I wanted to ask you a little bit about a think tank event you went to this week that was um, focusing on the U.S.-Philippine relationship. And in particular, did anyone pick up on the topic that we were discussing in last week's podcast about the Philippines lifting a moratorium on oil exploration in its waters in the South China Sea. Yes, actually. So the talk was hosted by the Stimson Center. It's actually how I met uh, the former ambassador, Thomas Hubbard. He was ambassador from 1996 to 2000 to the Philippines. He was speaking at this event. And then opposite him was a professor from De La Salle University in Manila named Professor Renato Cruz de Castro. It was actually very interesting. They did touch on the moratorium issue, mostly because this was still the period where people were trying to figure out why did the Philippines lift the moratorium after six years of keeping it in place. And then more news came out about a joint venture between the Philippine National Oil Corporation and CNUC, the China National Offshore Oil Corporation, aimed at the South China Sea. So the moratorium seemed to be lifted to allow this venture to kind of go through. And people were trying to puzzle over why that was happening. The US was very interested in figuring that out. And the panelists seemed to think that lifting of the moratorium, and I spoke with both of them privately afterwards about it, actually, the lifting of the moratorium and the joint venture seems to indicate that China is making some modest concessions to the Philippines on what joint development means in the South China Sea. So China has maintained a very strict rule that they do not want any exploration for resources in the South China Sea to move forward without Chinese companies. However, this joint venture signed between the Philippines and China allows room for international companies to move in during the process of finding the oil, extracting it, and then getting it to market. So China made a slight concession here, and it seems to be an indication that the Philippines' strategy of kind of keeping this moratorium in place, using U.S. pressure against China, but then also you know flirting with China every so often has paid off because now they managed to secure something from Beijing on this. In China's favor, it also works because it shows that China was able to cut a deal with the Philippines, supposedly without quote-unquote external interference. They were able to handle it by themselves. China's position with Southeast Asian countries in the South China Sea has always been, you know, let's not talk about the USA or Australia or Japan. Let's just handle this mano a mano, China and you. And China is demonstrating that, you know, we have negotiated with the Philippines on this. So other Southeast Asian countries, just negotiate with us. Let's not get all of ASEAN into this or let's not get the USA involved on the other issues in the South China Sea. I think it's a very interesting kind of discussion. And I think it was uh, very timely. So 
if other countries are allowed to take part in these oil explorations in the Philippine waters, they would be party to a joint venture with both the Philippines and China as well? The idea, the details of the joint venture are not completely public yet. So a lot of this is based on rumors, but the basic outlines of it seems to show that the actual production of gas could be handled by private companies contracted by the Philippine National Oil Corporation or by the Chinese National Offshore Oil Corporation, which was not previously on the table. So that's a, a slight difference. If you remember, the Philippines and China signed a joint exploration agreement clear back in, I think it was 2016, 2017. Under the terms of that deal, it was just going to be CNUC. Uh, that was the only entity that was going to be dealt with, but nothing happened. Um, joint right. exploration just did not go through. So this new joint venture seems to be a slight evolution of that. And uh, the Philippines has actually been quite clear to say that, you know, we're only working with CNUC in a certain area. Um, we're opening up all of the Philippine claims in the South China Sea to exploration. So, you know, other blocks can go to private companies uh, without any scenic involvement, in theory, at least. Okay. We're getting a tiny bit off topic on the uh, central theme of U.S.-Philippine relations, but this is very interesting. Would China have any sort of other ulterior motive giving this concession to the Philippines at this point? Well, yes, the whole point may be for China to demonstrate that they can handle things on a bilateral basis with other South China Sea claimants. It has, you know, it's, it's gotten into dust-ups with Vietnam and Malaysia over resource rights in the South China Sea. It has repeatedly brought into negotiations over the Code of Conduct, the blueprint for governing behavior in the South China Sea that is being negotiated between China and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. So China could be sort of intended to like, smooth the way for the code of conduct related negotiations? Yeah, that seems to be the point. China is trying to push to make sure that the code of conduct negotiations move forward. And the uh, Southeast Asians concern over that has always been China's insistence that outside powers like the US get cut out of anything to do with the South China Sea. That's very interesting. And the US is kind of supportive of the uh, code of conduct negotiations, I guess. So what else did we learn from the think tank event about the trajectory of U.S.-Philippine relations? Well, the current skepticism that a lot of people cast on the U.S.-Philippine alliance, and it is an alliance, you know, it's not talked about nearly as much as Japan or, say, South Korea or even Australia, but the U.S. and the Philippines have an alliance. They have security commitments to each other. The skepticism that you see from the Philippines these days concerning it seems to be factional. You have... President Rodrigo Duterte came into office very clearly stating, you know, he wants an independent foreign policy. Then the speaker's consensus seemed to be that he ran into the reality of the fact that, you know, the Philippines armed forces depend on the U.S. for a whole lot of things, not just in terms of the mutual defense treaty, but in terms of intelligence cooperation to fight militants inside Philippine territory or things like equipment to handle basically every aspect of the armed forces. So you can't get rid of the U.S.-Philippine relationship that easy. And as both speakers noted, uh, the U.S. remains quite popular among the Philippine public. So the skepticism that we see, this kind of vacillating back and forth between Duterte and his defense minister and his foreign minister, is basically this factional struggle playing out. Things can only move so far in a pro-Beijing direction or a pro-U.S. direction before one personality or the other runs into some resistance and then things kind of settle back into a, a new norm that's really not that much of a radical departure at all. Should we listen to a little bit of your interview with Ambassador Tom Hubbard? Yeah, so 
for the past couple of weeks, I've been working on a piece looking at the history of the U.S. position on the South China Sea, which has evolved quite a lot uh, from the San Francisco Peace Conference back in the 1950s. And the Philippines plays a key role in that. It is the only claimant in the South China Sea that the U.S. has security commitments to. It has a defense alliance with the Philippines. And one key character in this story of the U.S., the Philippines, and the South China Sea is former Ambassador Thomas Hubbard. He was integral in the late 90s in clarifying the USA's commitments to the Philippines under the Mutual Defense Treaty, which has always been sort of a sore point because the Philippines wants it to cover parts of the South China Sea. So it was very interesting getting to talk with him because he's a central character in this sort of story. So let's actually give it a listen. With all the misgivings that the Duterte administration has sort of brought up about the U.S. relationship, what is keeping the U.S.-Philippine alliance together right now, in your opinion? Well, first, let me uh, you know address the misgivings on yeah. behalf of the Duterte administration. I think it is is clear that uh, President Duterte himself has some misgivings about the alliance. He, he's uh, he's he's never had a, a particularly warm feeling for the United States uh, for a variety of reasons that may have happened to him in the past. But I, I think the president himself is, is is sort of sui generis on this. I don't think his views on the alliance are, are fully shared by the, uh, the the rest of his administration, particularly the, uh, the defense establishment, the trade establishment, etc. So it's, it's kind of a Duterte problem. But getting beyond that, I think the uh, you know from the Philippine perspective, certainly uh, the Philippine military greatly appreciates the relationship for what it brings them in terms of of training opportunities, in terms of uh, opportunities to attend U.S. military schools, and they very much value the the rotational presence of U.S. forces in, in dealing with the, uh, the Muslim uh, terrorist issue, that, uh, an issue that has been central, uh, a program that has been central to the relationship basically since uh, since 9-11. And we, both, we do obviously have a common interest in, in dealing with uh, international terrorism. I think we also have a, a common interest in, in trying to uh, keep sort of barriers against the increasing Chinese encroachment in the uh, uh, the South China Sea. And much of our, our, our cooperation these days is really uh, based on, on an effort to try to give the Philippines the kind of military capability and give our own cooperation, uh, the, our own alliance, the kind of capabilities that will, will help, uh, you know, deal with the, the Chinese uh, challenge. But it's also based on history. Uh, the Philippines was uh, our colony, and I think most Filipinos had its ups and downs and generated the kind of uh, love-hate relationship that comes from that. But I think the colony, having gone, become independent in, in 1946, as, as we had promised, has built a special kind of relationship. And that's reflected in the uh, the fact that we have a mutual defense treaty with the Philippines. The Philippines is the only uh, claimant in the South China Sea with 
with which we have a, uh, a formal defense treaty. We have a steady relationship, which I believe still serves our, our common interests in this day when, you know, our interest in South, Southeast Asia center a lot around the South China Sea and the Chinese encroachments uh, and, and around a continued uh, factor of, of international terrorism that uh, manifests itself in, in Mindanao, which is Duterte's home base. Can I talk a little bit about those ups and downs? So with yeah. the mutual defense treaty, um, and you've mentioned the South China Sea issue, how has a mutual defense treaty sort of evolved with something as, I guess you could say, controversial or ambiguous uh, like Philippine claims in the South China Sea and like naval personnel that will be sent out there? Was the MDT ever intended to cover the South China Sea for the Philippines? Well, yes. I, well, it expressly, expressly uh, has, has a relevance to, to the Pacific. The treaty itself uh, entails mutual defense obligations for, uh, in the case of an attack on the, uh, on the metropolitan territory of the Philippines, which... Uh, uh, it's a phrase that was based on the, the Treaty of Paris of 1898, which basically ended the Spanish-American War. And that talks about the metropolitan territory. But the treaty itself also talks about a an attack on the forces or public vessels and aircraft, either party, in the Pacific. And over time, we have we've made very clear uh, in writing. In fact, there's something called the Hubbard letter that we sent during my time as ambassador, which says basically we consider those uh, the Philippine uh, claims in the South China Sea to, to fall under that Pacific category. We consider South China Sea to be part of the Pacific, and that entails an um, obligation to uh, consult to to pursue common actions to deal with the problem. So it doesn't automatically say. If you know if the Chinese shot down a Philippine aircraft or shot sank a Philippine ship somewhere and 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 their claim to the in the South China Sea that we would necessarily respond militarily, uh, but it does mean we would have an obligation to come up with a common response. And that part of the uh, equation was made fairly clear. Uh, under the, the Obama administration, when Secretary of State Clinton affirmed what I just said, that we, we consider those islands to be covered by the Mutual Defense Treaty. Secretary Pompeo made that even clearer when he visited the uh, the Philippines uh, some months back, and, and he used the phrase, you know, uh, re repeated that territory is covered as part of the Pacific and, and said, we've got your back. Uh, again, he didn't spell out in what manner we would uh, fulfill that that pledge. So yes, indeed, it has relevance to the uh, the claim. And as I said the other day, uh, the Philippines is the only uh, one of the uh, South China Sea claimants that has that kind of relationship with the U.S. So talking about your letter, actually, uh, from your time as ambassador, that was quite the big step, or at least from what I've read uh, at the time, in terms of clarifying some parts of the MDT. Has there ever been concern on the U.S. side about getting entangled in some sort of conflict because the MDT was too broad? Uh, again, as I said, the MDT, MDT does not necessarily specify a military reaction. In the case of our mutual security treaty with Japan, we've got kind of joint plans and things like that. Uh, you know, kind of promise I make make more clear. Uh, 
that a military response might be uh, forthcoming if, if, it, if it's violated. The, the U.S. Uh, Mutual Security Treaty with the Philippines also talks about an attack on either of our forces in, in the Pacific area. And that, that is always interpreted as, as covering, uh, uh, you know, we've never actually uh, recognized the Senkakus of Daoyutai as, as subject to, to Japanese sovereignty, but we recognize that uh, our mutual security treaty covers that because it's uh, it's ions that are under the uh, administration of Japan. So all these treaties are a little bit different. Yes, of course. I mean, we uh, we would be very concerned if if anything happened. You know, that led to a, a violent situation that sucked us in. And, and part of our policy has always been to urge all parties to uh, proceed uh, peacefully and, and restraint. And we have always supported multilateral approaches within ASEAN uh, code of conduct. And, and certainly we support the, uh, you know, the findings of the UN Law of the Sea uh, uh, Tribunal that in most cases uh, back up the, uh, the Philippine claims. And we, we would like all parties to uh, support that. Uh, last question, because I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, just in your opinion, do you think the U.S.-Philippine alliance is in good shape in the near future uh, for the near term? Well, I think you know you have to think about how near the term is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe like well, five, uh, ten years out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if Trump's still president, or or I think probably uh, Duterte's uh, successor, whoever that might be, is is less likely to uh, you know. Let me use that terrible phrase, but uh, miles off <laughs> as <laughs> as, uh, as Duterte is. And I said the other day I've always kind of seen. Uh, uh, Duterte's uh, profane outburst to be the, in some ways, the equivalent of, of Trump's uh, Twitter. You know, they have to be taken seriously because they're they're said by a president. But there are a lot of other factors, and one of which is is that uh, upwards of seventy five percent of Filipinos support the relationship with the United States, including uh, the uh, security relationship, and uh, an almost equal number are very suspicious of China and its ambitions. So that public factor has to be taken into account. I, I'm cautiously optimistic that you know we'll get through this, uh, this uh, Duterte uh, period and, and come up with a, a, a formula that, that allows the basics of the uh, alliance to continue because it does support the interests of, of both parties. So Ambassador Hubbard has given us a bit of a sweep of history there. He's optimistic about the future of the, of the alliance. Did do, do you think others share that optimism? Yeah, so I actually talked with uh, Professor Renato Cruz de Castro from De La Salle, as I mentioned earlier, and he was also optimistic about the future of the alliance. He pointed out very clearly when I asked him, you know, Duterte does not like this alliance. The near-term prospects look quite bleak what happens if the mutual defense treaty is gone tomorrow, say? And he just said very clearly, he was like, the Philippines is not designed to defend itself without the mutual defense treaty. The armed forces are in some manner very dependent on the U.S. relationship and actually don't have much interest in diversifying security partners to China or Russia, which Duterte has floated in the past. And then as he said, you know, the Philippine public is quite enamored with the U.S. in a lot of complicated ups and downs kinds of ways. And ultimately, the Philippines believes that the U.S. relationship is actually its main point of leverage in the South China Sea. So even though there's issues about the U.S. defense commitment in Philippine claims in the South China Sea, 
having the U.S. at your back is actually one of the strongest positions you can have going into negotiations with China on something like the South China Sea. Right. So the near future seems quite uh, optimistic, despite the rumors to the contrary. From Duterte's perspective, it always has seemed to be that China is a presence in the region that can't be ignored and that it's economically terrifically important to the Philippines. So isn't that always going to trump those economic interests? Aren't they always going to trump the security interests? I mean, both speakers more or less thought that the U.S. needs to step up its economic engagement with the region. But on the notion of like a permanent presence for the Philippines, so long as it has a mutual defense treaty, the U.S. is also basically a permanent presence there. I mean, so long as there's that sort of commitment, the U.S. is always bound to defend the Philippines. And that means that the U.S. has to design itself in a way to have the kind of presence to even meet those commitments. So it's it's a bit dissonant. Like, as you say, China is the number one trading partner, but the U.S. is a security partner. But both speakers seem to think that that was actually quite beneficial. You can kind of play things off one another to extract good stuff from both sides, basically. And as you said, China is an enduring presence. But one thing that is not an enduring presence is Duterte himself. Both speakers were actually quite uncertain about what happens when Duterte's term in office ends, because at that point, it's the question of his successor. If another pro-Beijing, maybe anti-US president comes to power, that could put much more strain on the alliance. But there's also plenty of politicians in the Philippines that are not pro-Beijing. And we've seen this in other countries where, you know, once a new term comes in, they swing the other way. So that's the one piece of uncertainty that everyone seems to want to look out for. Well, thank you for talking us through the U.S.-Philippine relationship and for sharing your interview with Ambassador Torn Hubbard on South China Sea Current. What are you working on next week, Drake? So we're doing something a little bit uh, different. We're doing an update on everything that China has done in the South China Sea, which sounds so vague it's meaningless. But what I mean by that is we're tracking the movements of China's Coast Guard and maritime militia in the South China Sea over the summer and just trying to illustrate to people that, you know, outside of headlines, outside of the big news breaking stories, China has never actually stopped sending Coast Guard ships and maritime militia to occupy certain features. It's never actually stopped harassing different claims in the South China Sea. Um, it's been a constant enduring presence for months upon months. And I think illustrating that is going to be very important as a good refresher for people who are watching the situation. That's what we're working on right now. Okay, that story will be posted on the rfa.org and bananews.org websites in the coming days. On those websites, you can also check out our previous podcasts, or otherwise you can go to Spotify and iTunes and just search for South China Sea Currents. If you've got any questions or feedback, email us on South China Sea, that's all one word, at rfa.org, or follow Drake on Twitter. His handle is DRM underscore Long. I'm Matt Pennington with Drake Long, the South China Sea reporter for Radio Free Asia and Banana News. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again. Mm-hmm.